Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There are a few figures in American politics who have been more influential in the evolution of our current debate than Grover Norquist, the founder of Americans for Tax Reform. His no-tax pledge has become a mantra for Republican candidates across the country and have created the context of the debates we see year in and year out in Congress and state legislatures. And I sat down with him to talk about taxes and the proper role of government. Grover Norquist, great to see you. Thank you. I know uh, the ev- this evening, the evening we're taping this, you and uh, our old buddy Austin Goolsby are going to have a discussion about the Trump tax plan. And yes. Fiscal policy at mm-hmm. the University of Chicago, which should be fun. The two guys who competed for the title of the funniest celebrity in Washington. Absolutely. Great fun. Yeah. So, uh, but it's good to have you here. I- I'm, I'm interested. Um, we're about the same age, um, but came from somewhat different uh, backgrounds. Tell me about, about uh, your growing up in, in Weston, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Weston is about 12 miles due west of Boston. Uh, there was a uh, hotel pub uh, where you would stop and have lunch on your way to New York. You'd get 12 miles and that was lunch uh, a while ago. The, uh, my parents grew up in uh, Michigan and western New York, uh, Jamestown, and uh, moved around and then bopped, uh, basically stopped around in uh, Boston. Uh, and I grew up in Weston, went to Grade school and high school there, and then college and. Uh, well, yeah, a little place called Harvard. But yeah, before yeah. we get there, let's yeah. not go. We don't want to breeze through this. Uh, and and uh, your dad was uh, an executive at Polaroid. Yes, he did a bunch of things in manufacturing, and uh, at one point ran quality control for a number of years, and then purchasing. And. Uh, that was at the time when Polaroid was poor Polaroid. That was the sort of exciting technology of the day. You could take a picture and see it right away. Yes. Uh, Steve Jobs talks about Dr. Land as his hero, and Polaroid was very exciting. It was a uh, research lab attached to a company. Uh, and uh, my dad used to say he wanted to write a book entitled How to Bankrupt a Monopoly, because <laughs> they were able to do that. <laughs> they, uh, well, and... Today it's quaint to think about about it, but it was hot stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. back then, uh, and uh, you, uh, I read somewhere that you guys had pretty rigorous requirements uh, as kids. You and your, I guess, three siblings. You had three siblings. Yeah, uh, to uh, to perform. Uh, to do some research and make presentations on a regular basis, is this right? Well, the school asked us in third, fourth grade to do 30-second speeches and then one-minute speeches. And so my father, who'd done a lot of speech and debate in his high school out in Jamestown, New York, uh, would get you to prepare. My first talk was on Wolverines because, of course, it was Sunday night and I inform my dad, yeah, I'm supposed to give a speech tomorrow. Uh, and we just watched something about Wolverines on the Walt Disney show. So I had to give a speech on Wolverines, went to dictionary and looked up more stuff on Wolverines. And the first time you do it, it takes about five minutes. Uh, and you had to get down to 30 seconds. So it was a lot of practicing. And, and it was very helpful for my dad to patiently let you do it again and again and again. And Pretty soon you were saying more in 30 seconds than the first time out you're doing a couple minutes. Yeah, it often works that way. And you got, uh, I read, maybe this isn't true, but that uh, that became sort of 
that was not a one-off that you guys, your your fam, in your family, that you he asked you to do that. Look and read the encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was it was largely attached to, to stuff from school. They kept wanting to do speeches, but he practiced all of us on speech for speech class or drama class. And um, Weston itself was a pretty prosperous community. Schools must have been really good. The, uh, I went there starting in kindergarten. Um, went through high school, uh, all in Weston. And yeah, I, I like the schools. So it, it's a fairly interesting dynamic, a division between people who took it very seriously and people who didn't take schoolwork very seriously. And we had the folks who liked to play sports and the drama people. And the uh, and where were you? Uh, I was a student because I was told you're supposed to. Um, I played soccer in the fall wrestling in the winter and uh, track in the spring, but also work because I worked with the drama coach who was the speech coach uh, or the speech teacher. Uh, he would let me be in each of the plays and the, I'd, I could be in the musical, even though I wasn't really much of a singer. So I'd get a non-singing part in the musical. Uh, and then I would get a, a part in the, the, you know, the Shakespeare play that they did in the fall. So it's fun. It's good and, practice. And did it, so you learned how to speak and perform. So this is where your comedy career began as well? No, I started doing comedy because a friend of mine, uh, who's now at, at, at C-SPAN, he uh, said, I'm going to go do five minutes at the DC Improv. Would you like to come? I said, sure. So I went with him. Uh, and, he did his five minutes, and I said, well, how do you get onto the stage as an amateur to do five minutes? How do you sign up for something like that? He says, if you can come up with 15 jokes, half of which work, I'll get you on stage. I said, I'll start. So I got a little three-by-five card I kept in my wallet, and I'd write down things as they occurred to me. And then there's that funniest celebrity in D.C., which performed for maybe 20 years, and they would get D.C. celebrities, which are people you see on C-SPAN. Yeah, right. Always hilarious, by the way. Whenever I want to be amused, I turn on C-SPAN because it's uproarious. <laughs> so we had, you know, congressmen, senators. Uh, uh, Lieberman won one year. He beat Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens <laughs> never forgave him for that. Uh, he used notes, which wasn't fair. Uh, and uh, the late Senator um, Specter from yeah. – uh, Pennsylvania. I, I was in charge of getting Republicans to come on because they didn't get as many Republican congressmen senators. And they did ask me to do it when they heard I was looking to do some stand-up. They said, well, how would you like to perform? And I had five months to go. So I said, okay. And so I, I got ready. And it was okay. I did, I did well. Um, I didn't embarrass myself. And then they said... Were you, well, were you worried about it? Well, I'd never I mean, it's hard it. to go up and, and... I mean, it's harder to go up and try and be funny than it is to give a treatise on tax reform. Yes. First of all, everybody is as much an expert as you are on what's funny. Matter of fact, they are the expert on whether they think it's funny. You don't have a vote in whether they think it's funny. Uh, so you, if you talk about something you know uh, and they don't get it, it might be their fault. <laughs> but if you're telling jokes and they don't think they're funny, it's not their fault. It's your fault. Uh and also, it's tough to practice. Practice in front of who? So you have to have your own sense yeah, of right. what works. Your staff will either laugh with you or at you, but it's it, tough to get feedback from a handful of or, staff. Or laugh with you when you're there and at you when you're not. Yes. Uh, so it went, it went well. It went okay so that I felt comfortable. I did it many years in a row because if I couldn't get enough Republican congressmen or other folks from the center right, then I'd have to perform. So uh, – I did it a number of years. Uh, Senator Specter performed. He told four or five of the longest shaggy dog, dirty <laughs> stories, dirty jokes you've ever heard in your life. But when you're 70 years old and you do that, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, so it's great fun. Uh, Chris, you got to wait a long time to tell them, though, if you got to wait till you're 70. Yes, this is true. I don't think you could get away with it if you were 35. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's been fun, and I've just done a fair amount of it from time to time, just performed it. Georgetown for 16 minutes at their first annual White House Correspondence Dinner. So they're going to mimic the White House Correspondence Dinner. They have an institute of politics. Like yes, Chicago's. yes, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, we we are working closely uh, with them. So in terms of politics, yeah, uh, your your folks uh, I read were uh, 
uh, were kind of Rockefeller Republicans. Um, and I grew up in New York mm-hmm. uh, during the Rockefeller period. I was a kid in the schools in New York during that period. Um, he was not what I would describe looking back today, a Grover Norquist Republican. In fact, I remember 1970, him passing this big bond issue uh, in New York and that was going to raise taxes, and it was very controversial, and people thought he was risking his political career by by doing it. But your folks, mm-hmm. that, that's where your folks were. Well, my dad uh, once did a picture of Thomas Dewey, who was Rockefeller before Rockefeller, Yes, and uh, on a typewriter. So you, you do it with the shading. So now you do it on computers with, yeah. with little symbols or letters. He did it with a typewriter uh, for Dewey. Uh, that sounds harder than doing it on a computer. It's, it must have been a lot of work. <laughs> it, it's pretty impressive stuff. Uh, you still have that? Dad does, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, I, I've seen it. It's cool. And I think they actually got it signed at one point. Wow. Some teacher got it to, to Dewey. The, yeah, they, they were moderate Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. The Rockefeller may be unfair uh, uh, they. I liked Rockefeller, yeah. so I'm not complaining. I, yeah, no, no, he's just a pre-Reagan Republican. Yeah. So, um, the being a Republican used to mean you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line, and if you were south of the Mason-Dixon line, you were a Democrat, and it didn't tell you anything about your worldview on taxes or spending or the size or scope of government or foreign policy. Uh, but during Reagan's lifetime, the two parties have sorted themselves out to be much more coherent uh, vehicles for expressing people's wishes. And if you have a more limited or constrained view of what the government ought to be doing to people or for people, uh, then you tend to be a Republican. And if you have a more expansive view of the role of the state and a more limited view of individuals' roles, then you're a Democrat. And the, the two are separated to the point where um, – Things, everything used to be bipartisan back in the 50s because the conservative Republican and the conservative Democrat would argue with the liberal Republican and the liberal Democrat. So all the votes on taxes, spending, regulations, civil rights, everything was bipartisan uh, because the two parties didn't – shirts and skins didn't tell you anything. And as the two parties have sorted themselves out, there isn't a Republican in the House or Senate who'd vote for a tax increase. There isn't a Democrat who wouldn't. And – the issue I tend to focus on on taxes is the one that most clearly divides the two parties. There used to be moderate Democrats during the Reagan years who would vote against certain spending, but none of them would vote against a tax increase. But on spending, they might, or on labor union issues, stuff like that. They might have, or trial lawyers even, uh, but not on taxes. Well, Reagan himself signed 11 tax increases, I think. Oh yeah, and, and George Wallace and George Wallace, George Washington lost a bunch of battles, but that wasn't the purpose. Reagan never suggested a tax increase. He did get backed into a few. Yeah, he didn't have the House we'll, 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 or the Senate. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, but uh, although I, I, I take your point. Sometimes it seems hard to describe either of these parties as completely coherent these days. Uh, Much or, more than thirty, forty, fifty. No, years I, ago. I, 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 I do take your point. Yeah. Um, your grandmother, uh, I, 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 I had two. Which one are we thinking? The, of? The, your your grand your Swiss grandmother who yes. introduced you to human events. Yes, that's true. That's a true story. Yes. Yes. So tell them, tell me about her and that. Uh, uh, my grandmother was from Switzerland, Stein on Rhine, uh, and grew up in St. Louis and married my Swedish grandfather, which was a big scandal because all the Swedish girls in Jamestown had already laid claims, <laughs> and he went off and married a foreigner from St. Louis. Uh, and uh, so they, uh, they, were, they were more conservative. And she would get human events and send four of them up. I guess it was a weekly publication, and they'd, every month they'd get four mailed up to our house, my parents' house, and I would read them. And uh, go, I didn't see that on CBS. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. Well, uh, it was a, that was really the voice of the, of the right. Yes. It was uh, more political than National Review. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, to- they used to talk about totalitarian liberals and the leftist bias in academia and themes that are pretty mainstream on the right uh, today but were edgy or – Back uh, 
back then. So what mm. appealed to you about that, other than that it occurred to you that it wasn't on CBS? Uh, well, I became a conservative uh, as an, first as an anti-communist. Uh, I was watching the, the role of the Soviet Union in the world, uh, my public high, sc- public, high school public uh, library in Weston, uh, got rid of all of their right-of-center books. So the I Led Three Lives by Herb Philbrick was sold off for a nickel, and I picked it up at the, the sale. And uh, oh, Witness by Whitaker Chambers went for about a quarter. Uh, so they were purging all this stuff out of the out of the so public basically library. Basically, you got priced into the conservative market here. Huh? Yes, well, the, the, <laughs> trying to hide, the, get rid of this stuff. They mis- made the mistake of giving it to me to read. Uh, so I was an anti-communist, uh, and uh, from that, uh, it backed into the broader uh, questions of the role, the question, the role of the state versus the individual, and how much liberty people should have, and how much control the state should have, and. You started at the pretty bloody edge of that question when you're looking at the Soviet Union, and then how, how does it move as you move towards more liberty and less statism? And wh- uh, was that a fully formed uh, philosophy by the time you got to Harvard? I think so. Uh, when I was at Harvard, uh, Harvard undergrad, 74 to 78, and uh, there I joined the Harvard Republican Club, and the conservative club, which had like three members, uh, and the libertarianists. You probably rise up quickly in that organization. <laughs> That's huh? right. You get to be an officer right away. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Harvard uh, Sons of Liberty was the Harvard Libertarian Association when we elected Lita Cosmides, um, now a leading sociobiologist up at Stanford, uh, to be president. She said, could we call it the Harvard Libertarian Association instead of Sons of Liberty? And uh, so, yes, we did. Yeah. The... Uh, uh, but I, so I was political. I, in college, somebody was telling me, "Yo, you're one of these Ayn Rand people." So I figured I'd better go read Ayn <laughs> Rand, uh, <laughs> and I, I thought that's okay stuff. But um, she had many opinions beyond the importance of liberty, uh, and I think that in the political sphere, I'm only interested in liberty. How you lead your life is a separate issue. That you should be free to lead your life as you wish is step one. Step two is. Um, People giving you advice on how you should lead a good life as opposed to a free life. You, it's that. Uh, this is an interesting distinction because, um, you know, uh, the, we we talked about coherence before. There, there are different strains in the conservative mm-hmm. movement in this country. Today. Not all of them would express themselves as 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 you just did. And I know you you're a convener of many elements mm-hmm. of the. Coalition, the Conservative Coalition. You have, how long have you been having these Wednesday meetings? meetings? We started the first Wednesday meeting in early uh, 1993. Uh, somebody had suggested to me that we should have a coalition to think how to try and stop uh, Hillary Care uh, from being implemented when Bill Clinton was president and Hillary was going to be in charge of uh, managing more government uh, control of, of health care. And as we put it together, we started about 20 people. We realized that if you were going to stop Hillary Care, you had to slow everything down. And so the drive for the stimulus spending, who would help us fight that, the Second Amendment questions, all of the various parts of the conservative movement were brought together. And within a couple of months, we self-consciously had a broad center-right coalition and uh, about 40 people. Uh, Today, it's somewhere between 150 and 180 Meet and we meet every Wednesday, ten to eleven thirty, rain or shine. Not the week between Christmas and New Year's, but every other Wednesday. So don't show up, conservatives, if between Christmas and New Year's, if you're if you yes, that's right. We, to join. <laughs> that's the one. The one week we won't be there. <laughs> but what makes that meeting work is that people talk for three minutes. We now have thirty people present for three minutes and an hour and a half about what they're doing not what their hopes and aspirations are, not how deeply they care about something, not whining about why somebody else didn't do their homework for them. What are they doing moving forward, not backward? And that keeps the conversation about the future, about action and what you're doing. And it also 
creates a virtuous cycle where the more people are doing, the more they present. The less people are doing, the less they present. So in the room, the more active people are talking more often. And it's like, is it like open mic night where anybody can step up if they have something to say? Yes and no, but you have to plan ahead. So um, uh, Candace Boyer, who works with me, you send her an email, say, Candace, I want to talk about this on this Wednesday. It gets on the agenda. I, during the week, when I run into people, whenever I see somebody with a good project or a good thing, I say, could you present on that on a Wednesday? So I'm always looking for more people to present. or to pre- And the best way to get somebody to join the meeting is to have them present, look around and go, I want to be with these guys more often. And then they stay. So that's how you accumulate uh, I, I wanna, folks. I want to pursue this. Uh, I don't want to lose the sequence of your, sure. your story. But I, the reason I raised it only was because of this concept of not telling people how to live their lives because mm-hmm. you've, in, you've uh, invited, for example, the Log Cabin Republicans, a mm-hmm. gay Republican organization, to participate. Several. In, 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 these, in these meetings. Geo Proud. Yeah. So, um, and, um, you, you know, your, your, your wife, uh, Samah, is, uh, is, is, is Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, this this is the incoherent uh, part. This is the part that uh, this is the part you don't understand. Right. Go ahead. Yes. Well, but I but I will when you explain it to me. Good. So, that's what we're here for. No, but I mean, how do you uh, how do you bridge these um, yeah. fairly large chasms? Yeah, that very good question, and a whole bunch of people on the right don't understand this. This is, this is not an an easy concept. Um, what makes the meeting work, and what we realized as we were doing it is that everybody in the center right is there because on their vote moving issue not all issues their vote moving issue what they want from the government is to be left alone so you have someone that's quote-unquote religious right evangelical protestants conservative catholics orthodox jews mormons muslims people from the most important thing in their life is practicing their faith and passing it on to their children. Now, if you then ask them questions three, four, five, and seven, uh, some people will tell you, well, I don't like what people in, in San Francisco do on Saturdays. Okay, What do you vote on? I vote on wanting to be left alone so that I can go to heaven because I understand scripture and everybody else gets it wrong. So as long as you guarantee and protect the people in, in the coalition, their primary vote-moving issue, they're part of the team. They don't... Um, they don't walk away if they don't also get that they have other theories they may want to talk about or or work on. But you go around the room, the Second Amendment folks, the um, gun owners, hunters, people want self-concealed carry permits, they want to be left alone with their gun rights. They don't want you to have a gun. They don't want you to be a hunter. They don't want to tell you what to do. They want to be left alone. The homeschoolers want to be able to educate themselves. They don't knock on your door and tell you to homeschool. Uh, They don't want the government to make anybody else homeschool. The businessmen and women who want to be left alone to practice and run their own professional and business lives, self-employed people, uh, independent contractors, taxpayers. If you vote on this issue, what you want is to be left alone by the government. Now, you can ask people secondary, tertiary, quaternary, or whatever five is, um, uh, questions. You and then lost you, me at three. And then, yeah, then you can get all sorts of arguments, okay? Um, I, I, I'm on the board of directors of the National Rifle Association. I know gun people who have, in my view, the oddest views of free trade with China. But they don't vote on free trade. They vote on the Second Amendment. So it's not necessary to have an argument with them about the virtues of free trade. People are in on their vote-moving issue. What, what is necessary is that we take a break right sure. now. We'll be right back with Grover Norquist. So on this, on this point of uh, being left alone, and then I do want to get back to your narrative, what about on issues like uh, uh, abortion, uh, gay rights, and so on? Because uh, the, the, um, certainly gay Americans would say we should be free, and you obviously feel that way as well. We should be free to live our lives and have the same rights as everyone else to live our lives. Uh, women, uh, I, I think the abortion issue is a is a difficult, difficult issue, but there's a strong feeling uh, among women that these are decisions they should make with their doctors and f- family. Yeah. And, and, and Those are the clergy. two questions. Yeah, you, you raised the two points that people do when I explain the modern center-right the modern Reagan Republican Party is a collection of people who, on their vote-moving issue, 
wish to be left alone. Uh, what does that mean about abortion, and what does that mean about gay rights? I think on gay rights, you saw the melting of the opposition to the idea of, of, of gays being able to lead lives and being left alone. Um, it happened rather quickly, as things happen historically, um, because the people who had questions or objections to that, it wasn't a vote-moving issue for them. It wasn't a vote-moving issue. They might have said, well, if you, you asked me what I think, I'll tell you. I'm against X. You didn't ask if I vote on that. And, I mean, name somebody who lost an election over the subject. That, so, is, a, that is a change, though, because there was a time when that, that you know, I remember in 2004 mm-hmm. that um, um, the Republican Party put uh, – uh, anti-gay marriage initiatives on, the, on the ballot in some mm-hmm. states to try and up turnout among evangelical voters. Didn't happen, though. Um, when you look at 2004, um, matter of fact, the increase in Republican turnout in every one of those states was it was a general three-point up for Bush. Um, and the only states where that appeared maybe what happened would be Utah and Louisiana, neither of which were contested states in the presidential election. Um, the other states actually went the other way. But that was I looked a- into that at the time because I was writing a book about all of these issues. And I said, is that a vote-moving issue that went along partisan lines? It, the turnout didn't do that. It didn't but it was, help the but, it, but, the, but the theory was that it The theory might, was, yeah. yeah. That wasn't my theory, though. No, I understand that. Somebody else's theory didn't work. Sorry for that one. <laughs> so you feel free to talk about it. <laughs> no, no, just I was right. <laughs> okay. Noted. Yes. Well, uh, and what about the issue of abortion? Well, that's different because the question on abortion is not um, whether people should have rights or not. It's a question on how many people there are. I mean, I don't know anyone who says there are two people and you should be able to kill one. And I don't know anybody who thinks there's only one person, and you should make her have a baby. So the question is, are there two people? If they are, they both have rights. If there's only one person, then she has rights. So that's, that's not a political question. It's a theological or scientific question. And that's, and that's why, unlike other issues, there are pro-life Democrats and there are pro-choice Republicans. But other issues are sorting out much more uh, than that one does. Let's, um, let's go back to your narrative because you, you're the uh, convener of this mm-hmm. – uh, of this consortium of, uh, of organizations on the right uh, as, uh, as the founding uh, leader of Americans for Tax Reform. Mm-hmm. You, um, you, you came into that uh, through the government, actually. Ronald Reagan recruited you mm-hmm. uh, to, to put an organization together to help rally people behind the tax reform of 1986. How did that come about? Well, um Obama set up what, Organizing for Change or Organizing for America? Mm-hmm. Okay. Reagan set up, uh, the Reagan administration guys set up uh, Americans for Tax Reform. Uh, they they put together a board, they put together a budget, um, and then asked me to run it. And uh, our goal was, this was in 85, and our goal was to pass what became the 1986 Tax Reform Act. And in organizing that and I before I'd run the National Taxpayers Union between college and business school, and I'd been involved in taxpayer issues uh, for some time at, back in Massachusetts, uh, Prop Two and a Half there. Um, so there, we set this up, and then during the 2006 year, I realized we had a challenge. Some Republicans feared that if you reduced rates and broadened the base, eliminated deductions and credits, that having lost the protection of deductions and credits that the rates would creep back up again. How did you how does one minimize the danger of that? And that's where the taxpayer protection pledge came from. It was designed specifically to help pass the 86 bill to say we got 100 congressmen and 20 senators to sign two witnesses dated signed I will vote against any and all efforts Does have to, to be raise taxes. Or, uh... We don't ask for notarization <laughs> but um <laughs> Perhaps someday. Right, right now, we, we've only had one real problem. That was George Herbert Walker Bush. Everybody else has been we'll pretty good We'll get to about that. We'll get to it. that. Um, but I read somewhere that this idea of a no-tax pledge was one that you'd been mulling around since you were 12 years old or something. That did- well, sort of. What it was in, when I was 12, a young person, um, I was on a bus coming back from school, and the teachers had been berating us, saying, democracy doesn't work. Nobody knows who their state legislator is. It, People vote for nothing. They don't know. And I thought, well, I don't know who my state legislator is, and 
and I understand not everyone knows who their congressman is because the teacher was giving us statistics on this subject. So, but what if the Republican Party became the party that would never raise your taxes and would brand itself that way? Then, if, and if you could maintain quality control, then you might be able to get close to 50% based on party affiliation because the party would mean something. And then to get to win, you go campaign a lot, talk about other issues, and so on. I thought that that would be a good base for a party that said, you know, vote for the Republican. He may invade small countries you can't pronounce, or he can't pronounce, but he won't raise your taxes. And I said, that's close to 50%. Um, but we, when I was we 12... We the question of how you pay for the invasion of the small country if you don't have... Yes, well, I'm not sure I was in, uh, advocating invading small countries, <laughs> just pointing out they might do that on your behalf. This came up at times, you know. It has, it yeah. has, yes. Um, so th- that was the thought, but when I was 12, no one was paying any attention to my thesis, and it was after we got the <laughs> pledge going... Where do you go with that when you're 12, by the way? Who do you write with these ideas? (laughs) That would have been a good idea. Really, it just stuck with me but didn't go anywhere and I didn't have any radio talk shows to chat with. But then when I created the pledge for the 86 election, I realized that we had now begun the process of branding the modern Republican Party because we had, you know, just about half of the House and Senate committed to never, not in the next year, never, as long as I'm in office, voting for a net tax increase. That meant the next tax reform would be that much easier because we'd have protection against it becoming a hidden tax increase. And then we built from there. Yeah, so talk about that because that se- it seems to me when, I, when you talk about the evolution of the modern sort of Republican primary conservative movement, a lot of it happened in that sort of 1988 1990 time frame uh, where you had the uh, decision of then President Bush mm-hmm. yeah. uh, to uh, to to uh, embrace a tax increase uh, to try and balance the budget uh, after having said no new taxes in his and uh, sign the pledge in convention yeah. speech um, and uh, at the same time Newt Gingrich was emerging in the House as a kind of uh, Leading an insurrection against Bob Michael and the, and the Republican House leadership that was more moderate and embraced Bush's tax. How seminal was that one event, that fight over the Bush Bush tax increase? Uh, it was central, but it also came at the right time. When Reagan came into Washington, D.C., he was one of a handful of Reagan Republicans in, in Washington. There were only a few congressmen or senators who would have defined, defined themselves as Reagan Republicans, maybe Laxalt. Uh, so after eight years and then 10 years, 88, 90, uh, you had a bunch of congressmen and senators retire, uh, and then you had new congressmen and senators. It's you know, nobody changes their mind, people die. Um, so you, you, it wasn't just that people in Washington looked around and changed their mind. It's that people who'd grown up pre-Reagan died, retired, moved on. And new people who came into political action and, and paying attention to what's going on in politics, living through Carter's failures and Reagan's successes, and goes, I'm with him. I'm with that guy. That's what it means to be a Republican today. When I grew up, Reagan was the right wing of the Republican Party beyond the pale, as far as Massachusetts was concerned. Uh, and then he became the modern Republican Party, or the modern Republican Party adopted his worldview. Then you had Bush, who was losing in 1988 by 14 points when I had to go to my Harvard reunion and face all the Dukakis supporters mocking me for supporting this Yale guy. Um, well, you got even, didn't you? <laughs> uh, well, he did win, yeah. um, but he was down 14 points, and then he said, read my lips, no new taxes. He said, I'm going I'm to govern as Reagan. And then Reagan won a third term, unfortunately. Bush. Yeah, you're right. Bush, got, you. Bush yeah. got in when Reagan won the third term. There was another element there, which is that Roger Ailes ran a brilliant negative campaign in the summer of, 2000, of 1988 against Dukakis, to which Dukakis re, re, uh, replied feebly. Yeah. And and then the big debate uh, screw up of Dukakis's. So that certainly was part of it. Yeah. But he had there were other elements of what happened. 
Yeah, no, no, there, there were many. But, but Bush, if he'd not said, I'm running, I'm going to govern and go- run as Reagan, I don't think would have been competitive. He started behind. Um, and so he did get elected in 88, promising not to raise taxes. Then in 90, he raised taxes and dramatically increased spending. So he writes in his books about how he was raising taxes in return for spending cuts. Spending rose more that after the tax increase than it was scheduled to go before the tax increase. The tax increase fed spending increases. So he raised taxes, increased the debt, increased spending, all of which was punished in 1992 when he lost to a little-known guy out of Arkansas. What did um, you do in, in the uh, – Pat Buchanan was running in 92. Uh, wh- where were you in the 92 race? Did you play an active role? Not particularly. Um, I was at the – I mean, it, it, I've been at a lot of the conventions helping on the platform stuff. Oh, yes. Oh, dear. I was at the platform. And we had this discussion. And we got – I was overseeing as the political commissar for the tax and spending part of the – I didn't know you guys had commissars well, over the, there. I don't think they called us that. Oh. But your job was to report back to Central to see if, <laughs> if any of the officers were, were conspiring against you uh, and wanted to make their own decisions or something. And I had allowed in to the text, meaning I hadn't objected. I mean, I didn't have a vote. These are the, the, the delegates, right? And they said it was, it was – the tax increase was a mistake and we're against tax increases. Bush – had the previous week said the tax increase was a mistake. So I get a call, middle of the night, from Jim Ciccone, uh, James Baker's deputy. What are you doing? I'm sleeping. Why? And um, you let the, they said it was a mistake. I said, the president said it was a mistake. Only the president is allowed to say that the president made a mistake. So the next day, they had to walk it back, and they had these congressmen who had been there. I mean, Vin Weber was part of this. I didn't think I was letting something slide that was a secret, that it was a mistake. Uh, so, Bush anyway. himself wrote in, I guess, wrote in his diary that he thought when he signed that tax increase that he probably was consigning himself to one term. Hard to think he believed that because he turned to Sununu and asked if it would be okay, and Sununu said he'd cover for the right. And his first reaction was not to go along with the tax increase, but um, Darman was the smartest man in the world and talked him into it. Uh, but. Darman didn't pay the penalty. Darman didn't lose his job over this. Bush did. Look, no one's life is a complete waste. Some people serve as bad examples. And George Herbert Walker Bush is the guy who made this sacrifice. And in 94, we had ivory soap percentages of the modern Republican Party, House and Senate, taking the pledge. And we've had 90% of Republicans and senators taking the pledge ever since. Um, and the modern Republican Party has become the party that will not raise your taxes. The Under last- any circumstance, for any purpose. Yeah, because when you look at... So if there's a national emergency, uh, if there's a a war, uh, Mm -hmm. or are there there other things that... Is there anything that you could conceivably think of that would be... uh, that would merit raising taxes or raising new revenue? The federal government takes 18, 19% of GDP in taxes. And the amount of money that it misspends or spends on less important things. If something's an emergency, it's more important than the day-to-day projects of the day. Or it's not. But most of it is spoken for in in entitlement commitments and in uh, interest on the debt. So the the flexibility is a little less than you suggest, right? No, because Congress can change anything they want to. I mean, if, if you're talking about an emergency, if the, the no in the flood, the um, you know Canada attacks us so viciously as they often threaten to do, um, you know, th- th- what were you talking about? The necessity well, I mean, look, I mean, taxes? I think. Well, let me ask you this: You're it may be I don't yeah. know in uh, Bartlett's book of famous quotations mm-hmm. by now. If it, if it isn't, it probably should be uh, your uh, quote when you said, "My goal is to cut uh, government in half." In 25 years to get it down to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Yeah, that's the, that's the whole quote. That's good. Some people only do the second half. Yeah. Well, that's the virtue of a 60-minute conversation. You can do yeah. the whole – they can do the whole thing. But yeah. explain it to me. Sure. Um, if uh, – first of all, we're – government spends about 20 – federal government spends about 20 percent of GDP. Um, and I, I think we could take that 
down dramatically over 25 years, two ways. One is the cost, of, the deadweight cost of government is spending as a percentage of the economy. If the economy, if we had the present government, the economy was twice as big, the government would not be as difficult for people to pay for. It wouldn't be as oppressive to people in the way it operated, uh, and it wouldn't slow economic growth. So a, 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 a bigger horse, you can carry the same package a lot more easily. And so one in 25 years, if you go at 4% a year instead of 2% a year, uh, you dramatically increase the size of government. And spending as a percent GDP without changing the amount of money you're spending or allowing spending to go up with inflation has dropped significant, uh, significantly. We had taken... 4% is a... But it, it's a... A those hard are, number to maintain. Those are Reagan's numbers. You can you can do four percent. We've done it in the past. Um, we what we need to. There are do, a lot of economists who who would would question that. Yes, and at the end of the um, Carter years and at the end of the Obama years, left of center economists announced it's the end of growth. It's limits to growth. We were told that at the end of uh, of uh, Carter Carter, um, and then we had Reagan's four percent growth. Um, we'll see, but I think if we get some anything that looks like Trump's tax cut, 15% corporate rates, and his approach towards regulations or deregulation, his choices to run the FDA and the FTC and the FCC and FERC are going to dramatically reduce the regulatory burden by hundreds of billions of dollars in the economy. I think we can do very well on economic growth. And it's better to grow away from overspending than to have to cut it, but better, but also you don't cut government spending, you reform it so it costs less. We had two big, huge tax cuts, which you were in favor of, of, of course, in, in the 2000s, and uh, significant deregulation, uh, and, uh, and uh, when President Bush left, uh, left office, uh, the economy was shrinking at 8.9%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, what happened? Fannie and Freddie Mae did exactly what conservatives said would happen to Fannie and Freddie Mae, and they went bankrupt, and we had a crash. It had nothing to do with the tax cuts. But the two, you're right. Look at the two tax cuts. The first one was a bunch of, of tax credits out, which did reduce the pressure to spend. But the second one was the pro-growth tax cut. That was the cut in the dividends and the cut in capital gains. And during that period, you saw growth jump over 3% for four years in a row. Um, and the, the government's revenue was higher after at the end of four years than the government had projected with no tax cut and significantly higher than the CBO projected with a tax cut. So actually, that is one tax cut that actually paid for itself. Um, but it, is, it was Bush's responsibility. He failed to focus on Fannie and Freddie. Those things should be broken into 10 different pieces and sold off. The good news is that the Trump people get that. We can't ever let that happen again. We're going to grow our revenues for a minute here, and we'll be right back with uh, Grover Norquist. I don't want to revisit uh, all of that history, but... Um, it seems a little bit, a, a, a little bit um, myopic to say it was just Fannie and Freddie. Without um, Fannie, Fannie and Freddie, okay. when AIG uh, didn't have any capital reserves to cover the bets uh, that they were insuring, uh, when you had corporations that were uh, that banks that you were able to leverage twenty to one, sometimes fifty to one. And, the, and they were allowed to do that by regulators. Uh, and when you had these products that were uh, not well understood zipping around uh, in the financial markets, I mean, did that, did that not have something to do with what happened? Well, you also had when Clinton um, was uh, – when they were doing the banking stuff during the, the Clinton years – they were requiring people to make bad loans in order to do mergers. So you had the deregulation with the, oh, but we won't let you merge unless you do all the the bad loan stuff, and reducing the amount of of, uh, capital you had to to buy houses. I mean, that was the the way over-leveraging part. If we'd skipped on that, uh, we wouldn't have had the challenge. Um, But that's what needs to get fixed. Let me just ask you philosophically, um, and then I want to talk to you about Donald Trump and this and this tax cut. Um, are there things that government does that you think are worthwhile or important? Sure. I'm sorry. We do we back on stage? Yes. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yes. Uh, I think it's important to have a national defense, keep the Canadians on their side of the border, uh, protect the borders uh, of the United States. Uh, and I think it's important to have a judicial system that's not corrupt and functioning uh, to enforce the rule of law. Uh, we should have prisons for people who commit violent crimes, uh, not for people who we dislike. Uh, and beyond that, the government should protect people's uh, rights to live their own life as they see fit. And that's a... What about public education? Should we have... You were the beneficiary, you said, of, of good schools in, in Western Massachusetts. Should there be public schools? Right now, we, we talk about where do we go from here. I think every parent... I'm just asking sort of yeah. philosophically, is that a place where government should be? Well, but there's a difference between should everybody be fed and should the government run the farms, okay? Um, should the government require you to go to the school that they assign you to, or should have parents have the rights to say, if, if we're going to collectively spend $10,000 per child on education, can a parent decide to go to a, a Catholic uh, school if they're Catholic? Yeah, but that's a different issue. Should Jewish there school? be public schools, or should it be an entirely private pursuit, education? Right now, it seems to me that you allow, if you were to allow a public school to compete with homeschooling, parochial schools, private schools, um, charter schools, and so on. That well, you a lot of places where there are charter, charter schools, or there are charter schools in a lot of places, including here. And a lot of them do. And it's uh, the interesting question is, if you only have the charter school as an option, they've been closing Catholic schools around here as people go into charter schools, um, because you can't get the voucher to go to. Uh, to parochial schools. So they've been starving the, the, the religious private schools in Chicago and other major cities. So I think, uh, step back and say, how do you maximize liberty? And I think the most important thing we can do is let every parent choose. This is what education savings accounts uh, do now past a number of states. Uh, Indiana has pretty much vouchers for everybody, and uh, uh, they're building that in Wisconsin. You're seeing that in Arizona. Um, I would leave it up to parents to decide whether they want to go to a religious school a public school, uh, what kind of private school, secular private schools, and have that uh, is the, I think that's the most important education reform. I think that's much more important but, than well, let, controlling. Okay. But but what but kids presumably read. government should there should be some assurance that a child can go to school. Yeah, I mean, just we could figure out how much you're spending per child, and then let the parents decide. But that's tax where money, they go right? to school. Yeah, I'm not arguing for no taxes. Okay. The question so, is, would do private schools cost less than public schools? Do they have wildly fewer um, uh, bureaucrats uh, working for them? The, you know, the number of bureaucrats at Catholic school system in New York versus the New York a, school system. We, that's a those are a, worth looking a at. Whole nother, uh, a yeah. whole nother hour we could spend on that. What about infrastructure? You know, we're in the land of Lincoln here, and uh, uh, Lincoln even during the Civil War. Uh, laid the seeds for the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. He started the National Science Foundation. He started land-grant colleges uh, on the theory that we needed an infrastructure, a modern infrastructure, to grow the economy and maximize people's opportunities in that economy, education, mm -hmm. that we needed to be on the edge of innovation and basic science needed to happen that might not have an immediate applicability and so on. Were those – are those – legitimate uh, pursuits of government? I mean, do you, infrastructure, for example, is that something sure. government should invest in? Well, you have the railroads were built on with private money. The government granted land uh, to people. I think probably would have been wise to sell it since people got rich uh, with those railroads. Um, but as we did uh, make land You're available to people. You're not opposed to people getting rich? No, but not if the, the government's giving them a subsidy. That's not acceptable. Um, right, we agree but, on but that. But looking, looking at the present situation, we have a whole bunch of... We've just had eight years of a war on infrastructure where efforts to build pipelines were stopped by the EPA and by the government. We're now finally finished that pipeline, the North Dakota Access Pipeline. As up in North Dakota. That increases the value of every barrel of oil in North, uh, North uh, Dakota, North Dakota um, by 3 to $4. It means a lot to the state of North Dakota. It means a lot to the people of North Dakota. And that was held up for political reasons 
Um, and thousands and tens of thousands of people were damaged because of that. That pipeline that now comes down through Nebraska, um, the Keystone Pipeline, is going to provide energy assurance from Canada. You don't have to buy your energy from dangerous places. Well, a lot of that oil is going to get shipped overseas. But on it the infrastructure it, question, but now we have a pipeline. On the on the infrastructure yeah. question, though, pipeline. We've got two point two trillion dollars of infrastructure mm-hmm. needs that's what the civil engineers say bridges and roads and um and we can see it everybody can mm-hmm. see it in their uh communities um presumably and and it, during the obama years he called for infrastructure uh investments that congress mm-hmm. didn't do it now president trump is calling for a trillion dollars in infrastructure right. investments are are you supportive of that uh, I am supportive of dramatically improving our infrastructure. Starter, uh, we have $1.3 trillion of waterworks that need to be replaced, uh, sewage water and, mm-hmm. and drinking water. Mm-hmm. Um, there are state laws. Chicago has some of the worst laws on this, which mandate how you make the pipes because 100 years ago this made sense and they didn't have plastic. Uh, and they're now in cities that have open competition for big metal pipes or plastic pipes, um, it costs about 25 to 28% less for every mile that you do this stuff. But Grover, leaving the efficiency, it's still going to cost there's something. A, there's a difference between $1.3 trillion and $1 trillion. Yeah, there That's is. $380 trillion. But, billion dollars. Know, a trillion bucks is still a okay. lot, even, okay. even in today's day, uh, day and age. That's, you know? that's over the next 30, 40 years that yes. you have to do that. Go to roads. The Davis-Bacon Act raises the cost of all roads unnecessarily by about 20%. It was a racist law. But you law still need money in, to build roads. But I'm, I'm giving you 20% more roads by getting rid of a racist law from the 1930s designed to keep black people from working in the North. And that, that law should be repealed because it's ugly, and that law should be repealed because it loots taxpayers. Then another 20% of your road taxes are diverted into non-road stuff, which is either uh, questions of... of uh, Subways or other things that aren't roads, but a whole series of when you pay your gas taxes, a lot of that money is taken out. Doesn't go to gas taxes. Uh, it goes to the Davis Bacon Act. It goes to non-roads. So when people say I want more roads, the answer is that's not what politicians give you when you give them gas tax money. They give you other stuff. Wisconsin before Walker came in, the ten years before Wisconsin, the Democrats took a billion dollars out of roads and spent on other things. But Grover, then they turn around and said this. Grover, is, yeah, are you saying that we can that we you, we should we should have infrastructure re- improvement and repairs, but we can do it all uh, through. Uh, reform mechanisms and there's no new revenue necessary for it? No, you don't need new revenue. When we're talking about overspending by 20 to 40 percent, you could get 20 to 40 percent more highways, more roads, more pipes by getting rid of corrupt laws and wasteful laws. uh, And pipelines and railroads and refineries. There's a lot of stuff to be done here. There is a lot of stuff yeah. to be done. Uh, I mean, I, I worry about it. I worry about but the no fact that we're not, we don't have a 20, 21st century uh, infrastructure. And it's, in some cases, yeah. dangerous when you have bridges collapsing. And, uh, you know, today I, I saw a Department of Energy tunnel collapsed with nuclear material uh, in it. So um, so when the president says yeah. we should spend a trillion more dollars, you just you don't agree with that. No. Actually, if if you look at the president's campaign uh, website and his writing sense, he's talking about a trillion dollars and and about two-thirds plus of that is private money that he wants to leverage with uh, with taxpayer dollars. So it's not a trillion dollars for the appropriators to go. If he were to say, I want to invest a trillion dollars of tax money in infrastructure, would you be supportive of that? You'd have to look at, one, the timetable – over what period of trillion dollars, and two, are we looking? Are we paying off special interests, and we're and we, we're spending the money, but we're spending it so poorly that we could, with the amount of money we have today, get the same product? I, I, let me just assert that I think that we should be assiduous about how we spend mm. uh, tax dollars, but I, I also don't think that we can hide behind that fig leaf and say we can repair two point two trillion dollars. Uh, of needed repairs in this country is in, as you point out, water systems, railroads, airports, roads, bridges. And it it actually would be good for the country to to engage in that from an economic standpoint because right now you've got record profits, corporate profits. You've got 
people doing very, very well at the top mm-hmm. end of our economy, and I don't be- begrudge them that. But uh, what's really uh, needed is an infusion of energy among the middle class. Absolutely. And, and, the, and, and the infrastructure would very- be one way. Uh, a major inf- uh, mm-hmm. investment in infrastructure would be uh, a way to do it. What about like basic science and the investments of government uh, in labs around the country to do basic research that doesn't have, as Lincoln recognized, immediate benefit to some uh, f- for some remunerative purpose, but ultimately might lead to great discoveries that have enormous implications. That's a role that government has played since that time, uh, and it's been a, a positive role. But is that an appropriate role in your view? I think when you look at any of these questions, you say, what are the things the government's doing that get in the way of achieving the, the stated goal by politicians? Oh, I want to do this. And when you offer the politicians a way to get there that, that f- gives people more freedom and lower taxes, they go, no, I didn't mean that. I wanted more control. Um, all of the infrastructure stuff that you're talking about, that look at the governors and the Senate who they don't spend the extra dollar on infrastructure. They spend it on other things. Infrastructure is what they hold hostage. Roads are what they hold hostage. Just say, you give me money, I'll give you roads. But you don't give me money, I'm not giving you more roads. When a politician said he won't do infrastructure or roads unless you give him more money and taxes, he's telling you that everything in the present budget is more important to him than roads are, that roads are his least priority, the lowest priority that he has. And that's quite true. For most of these politicians, Rhodes is the lowest priority, and that's why they don't do the bridges, and that's why they don't do the dikes, and they don't do these things, because they're spending the money on other things to get themselves elected. In the, our state has a, an enormous uh, budget deficit here in Illinois. There are other states like that as well. I mean, is there, uh, and there are, there are real uh, human implications to that. Um, or is there an irreducible core you think we could reach where you would say, yeah, we, we are doing everything the way it should be done, and we can't pay for the infrastructure that we need, or we can't pay for, for the education that we need, or we can't pay for the basic scientific research that we need, and we need more money? I mean, is there any, is there any level at which, or is it just your assumption that we're always going to be inefficient and therefore there's always a place to find the money. Well, first of all, you start by fixing the problems that we, we have. 20% of, of gas tax money is diverted out of ga- out of roads. Stop that. Another 20% goes to Davis-Bacon. Stop that. When you fix that, come and talk to me about whether you might need more money. But no discussions about more money while you're I'm, pissing away 40% but, uh, So the it. answer is yes, that you think that there's some level at yeah. which – you reach the point where you say, yeah, we've done everything that we should and, and we still need uh, some more and so we're going to ask for it. Yeah, that's entirely possible. The other thing we have to look at in a country the size of the United States is we have trillions of dollars of value in land and things under the gr- land and under the water around. The government can sell off a lot of property and a lot of the, the mineral and gas uh, rights offshore as well as on federal land. Um, as is done on private land and on state land, uh, which tremendously increases jobs and opportunities, and you can use that to pay down debt or buy other things. There's a there's a whole series of project lines where the government could devor- devolve itself of assets. So taking a look at the military spending, the Calvert Bill would reduce the number of civilian Pentagon employees. There's 700,000. That we haven't reduced the civilian bureaucracy as since the end of the Cold War, or since we won the Cold War, um, the other team didn't quit, they lost. Um, but then in it, take a look at what we could do in terms of bringing the number of bureaucrats down as we've dropped the number of uniformed uh, soldiers, sailors, and airmen. If we bring it back to just, oh, 2,000 ratios, tooth to tail, you could save about $160 billion over a decade. So we've got an awful lot more guys in the bureaucracy of the Pentagon then you need, and you could do that through attrition. Calvert has a bill to do that. McCain tells me it'll go into his uh, bill as well. So there's a lot of savings to be made. And well, well, I think we should focus on that rather than trying to get into people's pockets let, for more. Let me uh, ask you uh, before we go about, the, uh, about President Trump. You've said that you thought he could be the most fiscally conservative president in history. Um, he's proposed a— Recent a, history. In, in modern history, you yeah. said, yeah. You you um, uh, 
you've seen his tax plan. It's sketchy, but you you know mm-hmm. the basic outlines of it. Maybe you were consulted on it. Um, he's also said that he doesn't want to, and and those will trillions of dollars of revenues will be stripped as a result of that. Uh, and I know that there's the theory that the economy will grow and you make that money back. The, some the of dynamics it. You scoring. make some of it back. Um, but w- what about his commitment also to not to um, touch uh, Social Security Medicare? He's already now proposed cutting Medicaid by $880 billion. Yeah. But, uh, but what about Social Security and Medicare? Do you support his position on that? And is that fiscally conservative? Well, his commitment was not to do anything on Social Security. Social Security requires 60 votes because when they did the fix back in 83, they said, now take 60 votes. So you can't do deal with Social Security. You can't reform Social Security or change it. Because that, um, that's not what he didn't say. I, I would love to do it, but I can't because I'm okay. limited but by the 60 votes. But you asked me if I cared that he took it off the table, and I'm just saying no because it's not on the table. Okay. Um, I think we should have done what Bush wanted to do was what, let young people take their FICA taxes and put it in a 401k. Other countries do this um, and have, have done very well with it. But on Trump, because yeah. he's not going to do that. Okay. Um, um, no. I, I'm just asking you if it's fiscally right conservative. Um, on his position on Medicare, which is he doesn't want to change it for anybody who's on Medicare now. I just think that's politically sensible. At some point, I'd go with what uh, uh, Alan, Alice Rifkin, Rifkin and uh, uh, the Speaker of the House, Ryan, put together years ago um, to – make that more competitive to bring price. The two ways to keep prices down of a product. One is to have a government law that says here's wage and price controls. Um, and the other is competition. And that would have int- introduced competition. As when Bush created that uh, Part D uh, on uh, Medicare for uh, drugs, uh, that allowed a lot of competition and it came in way under budget. You could argue it shouldn't have done it at all. I think it made sense the way they did it. Um, but the way they kept prices down was to have competition, not to say we say that this is the right price. Yeah. Monopolies don't do very well. I, but competition I'm not asking you better. what Grover Norquist would do. I'm asking mm-hmm. you about what Trump said he would do, which is nothing. He said, I'm not going to touch Social Security. For people Medicare. who are on it now, yes. He didn't say for people who are on it now. He just said, I'm not going to touch it. Okay. It is my understanding that it, it is both his position at the time and now that he's not talking about changing it for people are on it now. If we don't change it for people who are under 55 or 50, the whole thing collapses in the next 20 years. So somebody needs to have a reform uh, before the day is over. Well, I I know that uh, the president begins uh, every Monday and Thursday by listening to the Axe Files. So Good. if he is listening, Good. you just laid down a marker for him, and I'm sure he will act on it. Well, there lots of reforms to be done. Um, I think the tax cut will be very helpful, but also important is the deregulation. The changes at the FCC for some time are going to be more important than the changes at the Supreme Court. Uh, it's 15% of the economy. The changes at the FDA. You want more investment in, in, in science and so on, get the FDA. So by deregulating all these industries, you think you'll get, you'll get more, more just growth, to, just, just, more just, investment? Just, just to close out, so yeah. you 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 think think that there will be lost revenue as a result of these tax cuts? You think the benefit of the tax cuts uh, outweighs the, the 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 loss to the government of the loss of the lost revenue? It, it depends how you write them. The the House bill uh, is even on deficits out into the future. There there are some changes that are not completely clear that Trump has. Um, you can. If you grow at 4% a year for a decade instead of 2% a year for a decade, uh, the government nets um, $5 trillion um, more, $5.5 trillion more than it would have with, with the 2% growth. So if you get substantial growth, you actually end up uh, with a fair amount of additional revenue coming in. The other thing is when people get jobs, they also are not on welfare or welfare means-tested programs. So there is a savings as people move to self-sufficiency rather than dependency. Um, but there's also more revenue comes in from more growth. The other thing is we've got $2.5 trillion, some people say more than that, trapped overseas until we get rid of our worldwide tax system and go to a territorial tax system and bring that money back. So I think $2 trillion, I think, I don't think it all comes back, but $2 trillion flowing back in 
would be tremendously helpful to the economy, and then allowing that money to flow back regularly tax-free um, would create a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity and really kickstart the economy in a helpful way. I um, I don't want to end on a provocative note, and uh, I know this is your you, – you, you are steeped in this in ways that few others are, but um, this issue of – what the president does on Social Security and Medicare, and I, I'm not necessarily encouraging him to uh, to uh, take an axe to social, social Security and Medicare, but what he does on that and this if, this asterisk that you put on the tax cut, that if we grow at 4%, mm-hmm. those don't seem conservative to me. Those seem very much as a risky bet. But what I'm going to do is this, uh, is I'm going to book you right now for 2027 uh, on May, whatever the day is, and we'll be able to review uh, what happened over the last decade. That will be fun. Look forward to it. Grover Norquist, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.